Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. We'll continue our study in this wonderful book of 1 John. John is writing to what we probably assume second and third generation Christians. They're under attack from uh, false teachers that have been trying to infiltrate their church. So allow me to read this and keep that part in mind. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you from his, for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have become, you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, fa- the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Let's bow together. Dear Lord, open our hearts to the truths of your word today. Lord, guide us in our study. But Lord, help us to live it out. Help us to see that, Lord, somewhere along this continuum, we're either a child, a young person, or an older person. And Lord, we need to be constantly maturing in our faith. We must base our faith on the truth of your word. Guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So why is John writing this passage? Why is John writing this book to these people? Uh, First of all, John's writing to, again, second, third generation Christians who are under attack. They're in their churches. They're they're meeting for worship. They're being taught the Word of God, but they're also having others come alongside and say, well, Jesus really isn't God. He's just a good person, and it's okay to believe some of the things he taught, but he's not God. He did not die and come back to life. He did not raise from the dead to, to save you from your sins. And by the way, because you're flesh and blood, and he was flesh and blood, we're all just evil. Only God can be pure. Only God can be holy. But we have a few ways that we can get by that, either by living an ascetic life where we basically just deny all pleasures. We can get our way, our, earn our way towards God. A lot of different types of uh, foreign teachings, but they're infiltrating the church. So John says, I am writing to you now so that you will know that your sins are forgiven. Why is that important? Well, folks, that's the whole basics of salvation. The Bible tells us very clearly that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So sin is an issue with God. Sin separates us from God. So if we do not have forgiveness of our sins, we cannot have salvation. 
We cannot have an intimate relationship with God. We can never earn our way towards heaven like some of these false teachers are saying. So John is very blatant. He's saying, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. For his name's sake. Jesus didn't wait for us to ask. He didn't wait for us to get good enough or, or bad enough to understand our evilness, our sinfulness. He came to save us from our sins for his name's sake so that we would worship him, so that we would bow before him. And so we look and we see that, that John is writing these things to remind the people, what is your faith all about? Your faith is about forgiveness of your sins. That's the, that's the foundation of your faith. Without that, there is no salvation. And so John is overcoming these false teachings by just simply going back to the basics, the basics of our foundation. My little children, because your sins have been forgiven, you for, your, for his name's sake. And so we look and we see that John is just going back to the basics, making sure that the foundations are there. And then second, he is writing to kind of show the positions in salvation. Now, are you the same as you were the day that you accepted Christ as Savior and Lord in your position as a child of God? Are you still just barely able to handle the ABCs of Christianity? Are you just kind of toddling along, still sipping on the milk as what the scriptures say? Or are you eating the meat? Have you matured? Have you grown in your faith in Christ? So that's really what John is saying is there's no age that he's talking about. He's talking about Christian maturity. There are the fathers. They, those are the ones who are very mature in their Christian walk. They walk by faith because they have been tested. And they have tested God and his word. They know that his word is true. They have this intimate relationship with God through prayer. They know his word because they studied it and studied it and studied it and never have found any flaws in it. They know that it's true. They know it, they know it is their foundation to live by. And so they have tested themselves in their faith and they have grown to a mature level of faith where they can stand against all the temptation. They can live obedient lives unto the Lord. And so he's talking about these. First, he's dealing with the children who need to know the ABCs of Christianity. And they need to know that it begins with the forgiveness of their sins. And then for the fathers, he wants them to know that they have reached that mature level. We never get to perfection, but we all need to be aiming towards that goal of living a solid, faith-filled life. And so as a mature Christian, they have grown past the ABCs and now they are eating the meat of salvation. Then he deals with the younger men. Well, that's the in-between. They've grown past just the simple ABCs of the faith. They've grown past just knowing that Jesus died for their sins. And now they have a hunger and a thirst for God's word. They have a hunger for dealing with the Word of God so that they can grow and continue to grow. And God's Word is going to continue to challenge them to grow. And so they are in that growing process. They're not just sitting and saying, okay, I walked down the aisle, I became a Christian, that's all there is to it. No, they want more out of life, out of their Christian life. They want to grow closer to the Lord. And they know that the way to do that is to read, study, meditate, and even memorize the Scriptures. They know that 
the way to do it is spend that intimate time with God to develop that relationship that God wants them to have. And so they are, as the scriptures say here, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. That is that gift of salvation. You've overcome him, but I am writing to you so that you can know that you have this victory. And that victory is secure. Now, if you notice in verses 12 and part of 13, he says, I am writing to you, little children. I am writing to you, fathers. I am writing to you, young men. Then at the end of verse 13, he says, I have written to you, children. I have written to you, fathers. And I have written to you, young men. Then if you look at that, he says very much the same thing that he just said. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. You know the ABCs. You know where your gift of salvation comes from. I have written to you, fathers, because he basically says the exact same thing. Because you know him who has been from the beginning. And then he says, and I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And you have the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Very similar to what he had said earlier. So why? Use the present tense and then the past tense. Well, here's what John's dealing with. He's dealing with young Christians. Many of them, again, second, third generation, maybe even fourth generation Christians. People who have just come to Christ. Many, probably none of them were alive when Jesus walked the earth. Probably none of them actually saw him crucified, buried, raised from the dead and ascend into heaven. They are just trusting what they have, the truths of God's word. Here's the problem. The New Testament had not been written yet. Well, the Gospels had been written, but they were not in a combined book like we have as our Bible. They've been circulated around. Many people have read them or had been preached to them about it. But not everybody had a Bible to read these things. And so John is saying, I am writing to you to tell you the truths that are founded in Christ. Then when he says, I have written to you, he's saying, oh, by the way, I've already covered this before. It's called the gospel. I wrote a gospel. I wrote many years ago the gospel of Christ. And I'm now writing to you to remind you of what has already been written. To remind you that this foundation has already been set. There is no problems with this foundation. It is a true foundation and it is found in Christ. What you're being exposed to now is not the gospel. You're being exposed to false teachers who are trying to take the gospel and twist it and turn it and to find fault with it. So I'm writing to you to make sure that you know where the foundation is. I have written to you so that that foundation is secure. It has been secure. There's no doubt about it. I'm not the only one that wrote it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, now John have written this gospel. And so now we see that the gospel is written on our hearts as well. So John is trying to live out the gospel. So first of all, he, has, he is writing to tell them where they are in their status of Christian maturity. And he has written to them to say, this is the foundation of Christianity, and it is already set in place. Do not listen to anybody who would try to doubt this. And so we look at those first few verses, and John is trying to solidify where people are in their Christian walk. 
And he's, he doesn't get into, well, if you're a child, you need to grow. That should be a known given. If you're a young person and, or a young Christian and you're starting that walk in Christ, you're reading and studying the Word of God, you're developing a prayer life, he's not saying, well, that's enough. He doesn't say to the fathers, now that you're mature in your faith, that's enough. It is simply stating, these are the paths that we all should go through as we mature as children of God, but the foundation is critical. The foundation is faith in Christ because he has forgiven us of our sins by dying on the cross to save us from our sins. So then we pick up verse 15. It says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This kind of mimics very much what we've already been dealing with in 1 John. He basically says anyone who walks in the darkness is not in the light. Now he's saying anybody who walks in the, in the ways of the world is not walking in the ways of God. And so we look and we see that God is just simply warning us of the lures of the world. Now, we struggle. We live in the world. We live here on planet Earth, and this is not God's domain. God's domain is heaven. The Bible even tells us that the ruler of this earth, this world, is Satan. So we live in Satan's domain, and yet we are to be God's children. And so he is saying, do not love the things of this world. That's kind of hard to do when this is the only place that we know of. This is where we live. Matter of fact, it's doubly hard because we were born with a sin nature. We were born children of Satan. And we had to overcome that through the blood of Christ. And so we struggle. I struggle and you struggle. God's word tells us that when we become a child of God, behold, all things become new. That the old passes away. But unfortunately, the Bible also tells us that there are two natures that we deal with. You and I, as human beings, have a sin, fleshly nature and a godly, spiritual nature. And those two natures are always at odds, always battling each other. I used the illustration a few weeks back. You know, it's kind of like having a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder, you know, trying to tell you which way to go. Well, it really isn't that. It's God living in us. His Holy Spirit lives in us. And when we surrender to the powerful control of the Holy Spirit and obey the Word of God, then we are going to do the things of God instead of the things of this world. But everything around us stands in opposition to the Lord. Again, this is not His domain. God has already prepared for us a perfect place, but this isn't it. That is yet to come. While God's great power is enough to overcome the things of this world, it is us that have to faith Him, to live it out. See, we're not immune to the things of the world, but God has given us the ability to overcome. That's why He's saying to these young people, these young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So we have that victory. It is found in Christ. And that victory is in us through His Holy Spirit, because it is the Spirit of Christ living in us and through us to have this victory. I shared the passage of Scripture last week 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape, so that we will be able to endure it. That's God's promise. That's not a pie-in-the-sky hope. This is God's promise. He is faithful. He will give us the ability to overcome any and all temptation. Now, we look and we see that God is a God of love. But did you know there is one type of love that God hates? What's well, found right here? Do not love the world. God hates people who love the world. Do you remember Paul was talking one time about those who were there as he's in prison ministering to him? And he calls out one guy by name. He says, he's not with us. He left us because he loved the world more than God. How do we know? A man was there with Paul, living alongside of Paul, the greatest, one of the greatest examples of the Christian faith known to man, and yet he abandoned what he saw to be true and went and chased after the things of the world. We're not immune. Now, if you truly are a child of God, you'll be able to overcome. If you're thinking that you're a child of God or just proclaiming that you're a child of God, you can still be overtaken by the love of the world. And so we look and we see that the love here shows affection and devotion. But what's the object of that affection and devotion? If we are God, then God is the object of that affection and devotion. But if we love the world, then we're going to love the things of this world. That will be the object of our affection and devotion. So if we're devoted to God, we're going to worship Him honor him with our lives and our affection will be towards him we will love him with all of our heart soul mind and strength and we'll love our neighbors as ourselves as we dealt with last week so how do we know if we're being tempted well john kind of gets into the temptations of the world look at verse 16 for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from this world. So we need to look at the secular world around us and see how it operates. Satan and his demonic forces will do anything and everything to keep people from coming to Christ. They will entice them with the things of the world to where they want it more and more and more. But he also tempts us as Christians with these same temptations. He knows that he can't keep us from going to heaven, but we're still here. I've been a Christian since I'm about nine years old. I pray that I'm living a life that shows others the love of Christ. But what if I chase after the things of the world? What if I allow the temptations of the world to overtake me? What if I turn my back on God and the power of the Holy Spirit and fall away from the truth? 
Well, I've lost my testimony. I have harmed the cause of Christ. And so that's what John is saying to us. We need to be on guard because the things of this world are going to be tempting us. Those who live in this world, it's really no temptation. It's just a simple way of life. They're going to live this way and think it's the norm. But for us, it should be the opposite of the norm. It should be that which we are forbidden to do. So John is simply saying, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Now, John basically says, we're, we're under attack. And it's basic. You can say, okay, well, there's thousands of things that are attacking me, tempting me. Well, he basically boils it all down into about three. He says, here's the three main categories of temptation. The first is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. There's a lot of different ways that you could describe this. You and I live in flesh and bone block, uh, blood bodies, right? So we have fleshly needs. When you get hungry, you eat. When you get thirsty, you drink something. When you get tired, you go to sleep. Many other simple desires and needs. What happens when the lust of the flesh overtakes that? Well, then your needs become desires. And so simply eating a meal becomes gluttony. Simply taking a sip becomes drunkenness. Simply sleeping becomes laziness. There's so many other ways we could approach this. But you see that people in our world today, it's all about me. It's all about me. Nobody else matters. Whatever I think is right is right. Whether you think it's wrong, it doesn't matter to me. It's only what I think that I'm concerned about. Who, how dare you say that what I'm doing is wrong? I'm not going to judge you, so you shouldn't judge me. And so we look and we see the sins of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, just continue to grow because of our desires. We want what we want when we want it. If we see it, we have to have it. Whatever we want to do, we'll do it. And so we look and we see the lust of the flesh. But then we also see the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes is where we are enticed. What we see affects our entire being. If we see something that we want, then it triggers a desire. What better illustration from the Bible than David? He should have been out on the battlefield with this army, but instead he's on the rooftop of his palace, overlooking the great city of Jerusalem, his home. As he looks, he sees a woman on the rooftop bathing. Her name's Bathsheba. Now, David has plenty of wives and even concubines. He doesn't need another one. But he sees what he wants. And the lust of the eyes take over. 
and he desires what is not his, what should not be his, what is not good for him, what is harm for him, and he insists that it become his. It's not an it, it's a her. It's a person. So David let the lust of his eyes overtake his relationship with God. This is the man that God himself says, here is a man am I. He loved him. He says, he's the apple of my eye. And yet David turned his back on God and says, I know what the word of God says. I know what you don't want me to do, but I'm the king of all of Israel. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so he took Bathsheba as his own. Ended up committing murder to get her. Now, is that right? That's the perfect example of the lust of the eyes. So we look and we see, can it be overcome? Well, there's a lot of temptation out there, isn't there? It's hard to watch television without some commercial coming on that will tempt the lustful of the eyes. We have to guard against it. A man named Joseph had a coat of many colors. His brothers stripped it off, sold him into slavery, ends up in the house of Potiphar as a slave. Moves up to be one of his chief servants. Potiphar's wife had eyes for Joseph. And she wanted him. She had the lust of the eyes. But Joseph was right in God's eyes. She grabbed his cloak and he wiggled out of it and fled. What a difference between Joseph and David. David saw what he wanted and acted on it. Joseph was equally tempted, but he fled. That's what we're able to do as children of God. There is no temptation, but it's common to man, and God is faithful. He will give us a way out. He will enable us to overcome the temptation. So we look and we see that our focus must be on God, and then our vision will be right. He will purify our vision. He will control what we think when we see what we see. So the lust of the eyes is seeing that which is out there and desiring it for our own. It may not be a person. It may be an object. Your neighbor gets a brand new car, invites you over to look at it, got that new car smell, got brand new tires. It shines. Then you look back over your own driveway and Yours has a bunch of dents and scratches and tires that need to be replaced. You're not sure how many more miles it'll last. Oh boy, wouldn't it be nice to have a brand new car, but you can't afford it right now. Got too many other obligations, but you sure do want it. Do you see how simple things like that can happen? Or you talk to somebody, and you find out their status in life, and how much influence they have over others. Man, I wish I had that. And you start wishing and desiring for that, which is not yours to have. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that leads us to the pride of life. 
It's not seeing what others have, but it looks, it's looking at what you have and saying, look at what I have and being braggadocious and boastful about what you have or what you can do or who you are in life. Jesus spoke about pride and humility probably more than anything. He told the man, if you go into a host's home, don't sit at the head of the table thinking that you're important. Also, the host may come by and say, oh, by the way, there's quite a few people who are more important than you. You need to move way on down. Instead, sit at the foot of the table. And if the host wants to honor you, he may do so. But don't be braggadocious. Don't be boastful in who you are or what you have. He even dealt with this with John. John and his brother James. Do you remember what they did? They came to Jesus and then got their mom involved. Jesus, can you guarantee that when you come into your heaven that my sons will sit at your right hand and your left hand? John knows what he's talking about. He went through that. He went through the boastful pride of life. I'm one of those few people that are in Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Surely we get the head of the table pit, uh, places. John's saying, no, boastful pride of life is of the world, not of God. So we look and we see that God simply wants us to be humble. He wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants us to love others with the same love that God has given us. So we look and we see that the source of temptation doesn't come from God, comes from the world, specifically Satan. He is our enemy, but he controls this world. And so much of what we experience in our world would be temptation. Temptation that deals with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The ways of the world are always devastating. There are always consequences, spiritual consequences. The ways of the world can and must be rejected and overcome, and we can only overcome them through the power of Christ living in us. Verse 17 says, The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God shall live forever. According to what scientists you listen to, this earth has been around for billions and billions of years. And they think it'll last for some more billions. But if you read the Word of God, God created it. There's a beginning to it. If you read Revelation, there will be an end to it as well. Revelation says that the heavens and the earth will melt away. Folks, that's not a, uh, a nuclear war going off because that would affect parts of the earth. wouldn't affect the heavens. God himself says, I will destroy them all and replace them with a perfected heaven and earth. The heavens, the universe, and this earth will melt away. It is not forever. It may seem forever because billions of years seems like a long time, seems like forever, but there will be an end to it. There's also going to be an end to my life and your life. We call it the date of death. 
folks. That's really not the end. It's not when we die. We die physically then, but we're more alive, hopefully, as a child of God after that than we ever were living on this earth. And so God is, through John, is simply saying, this earth is going to pass away. With it, all the lust. And God will create and bring us into a perfected place. He'll give us a perfected body. He will place, place us in a perfected place we call heaven. And it will last forever. So, many people are struggling with, do I just want to enjoy what I know, which is life here on earth, and enjoy it the way I want to enjoy it, with no rules or regulations, I'll just live by my own lustful desires, it's all about me, nobody has the right to tell me I'm doing wrong, so I'll just do what I want to do. Well, that's where the large majority of our world lives. Or do we believe the Bible? Do we believe that we are sinful and separated from God and yes, there is a God and there is an eternity and our eternity is determined by our relationship with Christ? Are we willing to surrender this earthly desires and to surrender to the love of Christ living in us and through us so that we know that we have a secure eternity with the Lord? We struggle with the unknown, don't we? What we have right here on earth is a known. We may not like it, but we still know it. Heaven's an unknown to a large degree. I have a lot of theories about heaven, but you know what? I've never been there. I don't have any way of proving them. So some people say, are we sure heaven's real? Are we sure that it's worth living a life for Christ? i tell you what. I'd rather be wrong and there not be a heaven and live a life of love, compassion. And there not be a heaven than to be living the other way and find out that there is a heaven. Because my eternity would not be where I want it to be. Think about it. Do you have the foundation of faith? Forgiveness of your sins? Do you know that Jesus died for your sins? That he rose victorious to give us eternal life and salvation? Where are you on that continuum? Are you still a child? Just playing with the ABCs of your salvation. Never really growing. You're saying, well, I'm a Christian. That's all that matters. Are you maybe even struggling in your growth? You know that the Word of God is available to you. You know that before you read it, you need to spend some time in prayer so that the Holy Spirit of God can explain it to you and show you the truths that are found within. And then as you do, you develop a greater prayer life where you can share with God whatever's on your heart. Have you come to a point where you really don't struggle too much with the temptations of this world? Because it's already been settled. You're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of every day. And you're looking for ways to show his love towards others as you live. 
You know that the Word of God is powerful and true. You've read and studied it where it's a part of you. You have this intimate time of God where you never say amen. It's just a continuous walk of life with God with you. Where are you on that spiritual continuum? Don't ever feel like you've gotten to the point where you can't grow anymore. We'll never get there. We sure do need to be a lot further than we probably are. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you realizing that we have all far, fallen far short of your glory. We have not lived a life that is always pleasing to you. Or we may not be where we need to be on the spiritual continuum. But we need to be focused more on growing in our relationship with you, in our understanding of your word, and our obedience to your will. Lord, as we do that, you'll strengthen us more and more so that the temptations of this world will grow more and more dim. They'll have less and less of an effect on us. And Lord, we pray that as we become more mature in our Christian faith, that we'll become a greater minister, a greater witness, a greater testifier of our faith in you and what you have and what you will continue to do in our lives. May we witness and share what we know to be a truth, that our sins have been forgiven, that Jesus died in our place, that he's made the way of salvation and eternal life, and that the reward is eternal. Lord, guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.